0: This. Oxfam says an explosion of inequality is holding back the fight against global poverty when one in nine people around the world do not have enough food to eat. The growing gap between rich and poor is scandalous, says Oxfam's Max Lawson. The incredible concentration of wealth right at the top of society, which is deeply, deeply divisive, and very, very economically inefficient. So we're very worried about that. It's bad for the planet, it's bad for the economy, and it seems to be getting worse. The report comes as global business and political leaders prepare to gather in Davos, Switzerland, for the World Economic Forum. Campaigners are calling on policymakers to play their part in tackling extreme inequality, beginning by taxing the rich more. You've got mining companies in Africa that are busy making an absolute fortune and paying no tax. Tax isn't just about money. Tax, let's, it's better to visualise tax as schools, as hospitals. Using data from the bank Credit Suisse and Forbes, Oxfam says the richest 1% of the world's population currently owns 48% of its wealth and that's set to exceed 50% next year. Professor Andy Green of the Institute of Education at University College London says there are a multitude of mechanisms
1: driving inequality. Technological change, which is biased in favour of higher skills, uh, which reduces the demand for low-skilled people and therefore reduces their uh, bargaining power on wages. Weakening trade unions, stronger corporate power.
0: Green says that power is used to influence government policy large corporations have so much lobbying power now
1: and uh, regulation makes a great deal of difference not only to company profitability in all sorts of ways but to uh, what you can do in terms of paying your top owners.
0: Along with moral and economic arguments there are links between wealth inequality and violence including terrorism says Professor Tim Krieger of Freiburg University in Germany. He spoke to VOA via Skype. We do see that even religious terrorism has a strong Uh, economic uh, component, uh, so you use the religion as the vehicle to to express uh, your uh, dissatisfaction uh, with the uh, uh, political situation, with the economic situation, and here uh, inequality comes into play. Analysts say one of the regions where growing wealth inequality has driven social unrest in recent years is southern Europe. In Greece, worst hit by the global economic crisis, extreme politics is on the rise, and polls show the far-left Syriza party is expected to win next week's general elections. Henry Ridgewell for VOA News, London.
1: Great, thanks a lot. If you could switch over to my laptop, that'd be great. And of course, that election in Greece happened uh, today, and the far-left party has won that election and uh that is going to pose all sorts of new challenges to um uh Europe and to Germany etc cetera, etc cetera. uh that's the kind of world in which we live so uh, over these um three uh, uh, over these uh, next three months or so as dave's just said we've got this series uh that we're looking at That's uh my wife's phone <laughs> there <you are. laughs> and, uh, at least she didn't answer it That's a really, shall I tell you something um, Connie and I were at a wedding this has nothing to do with what I'm going to say we were at a wedding we were at a wedding um, back at the beginning of the summer and um, the, it got to, got to the stage where the bride and groom were making their vows and uh, they just started saying those words and the bride's father's phone went off he was sat in the front row And uh, so this really solemn moment in the service, we were there. The bride's father's phone went off, and he answered it. That was the amazing thing. And and then had this little chat. And then, whilst the uh, the uh, the vows went on, he then sent a text message. And uh, so everybody spent the whole time listening to him. And Corny's sending a text message even now. Are you doing that? Thank you very much. Anyway, um, don't shoot the messenger. Uh, Minor prophets, uh, major themes. It's really um, easy, isn't it, to assume that the Old Testament and all of those uh, books, and this evening we're looking at the book of Amos. How can you look at a book in a few minutes? So we're just going to sum up the major theme the major theme of the minor prophet. These prophets, they wrote so long ago, eight centuries before Jesus, they wrote in, in that way. So how can you? How can they have anything to say to our society today? What I want to show you is that what Amos had to say is utterly relevant to life in Greece. It's utterly relevant to life in Europe. It's utterly relevant to us uh, here today, life, uh, life in London. A few years ago, I, uh, I used to have a job in my spare time working as a presenter for BBC One television. And, um, and I was given the job of going out to Guatemala to make a film about um, poverty there. And on the way out, I uh, sat on the plane next to a guy who's also called Steve, who was a cameraman that I often worked for, with, I should say, when I worked with the BBC. And he said... He said, Steve, I came out to Guatemala five years ago and I went to a village where poverty does not affect them at all. He said, it was amazing. It's through the bush and I'm telling you, these people live at peace. He said, we were there filming and uh, no one, no one, while we were filming, tried to steal anything. When you work with a camera crew, it's an amazing thing. You always have to watch all your gear because you put it down on the pavement to film, and someone is always trying to nick something. And he said nobody wanted anything, and these people are completely at peace. So we went and we made our film about poverty, and we had a day off in the middle. And uh, he said, we've got to go see this village where I went because he said, you've no idea, Steve, it's like paradise. So we hired um, a car, um, a four-wheel drive, and um, we drove off up some road. He knew where he was going. And then the idea was that we drive for a few hours through the bush and we reach this idyllic village where poverty has never affected anyone. But when we get to the turn-off where the dirt road was, he told me, five years ago, it had been tarmacked. And instead of taking us four hours, it took us about half an hour, you know, three-quarters of an hour as we sped down this new tarmac road. Anyway, we approached this idyllic village, and we were going to do a little bit of filming there. And we got out of the van. We had some other guys with us as well. And um, we began to film. And just as ever, people tried to nick things, and then one of the cameramen was wearing a Nike hat and some kid demanded that and they were pouring at people's watches and trying to steal those and uh, the streets were lined with posters and there was a Coca-Cola machine outside uh, one of the shops I remember and Steve, the cameraman, he was really crestfallen by all of this and on the way back, we discussed why it was this place was just like anywhere else And we reached the conclusion that what had happened was simply this. When they cut the road through the bush and they laid the tarmac, alongside it, they brought electricity. And the electricity had brought the television screen. And the television screen had brought adverts for products that these people didn't have. And the advertising of what they didn't have had convinced them of their poverty And because they felt that they didn't have what other people had, they had been spoilt by that and their community had been corrupted. There's a book called um, Spirit Level. I don't know if you've ever read it or heard about it. If you've not read it, you should. I mean, uh, you know, it's terrible when I'm not trying to put that on you, but it is a brilliant book, Spirit Level. And it simply shows, there's a a piece of research, it simply shows that societies that struggle are societies with what's called relative poverty. If everybody lives at the same kind of level, they're okay, but relative poverty is what really hurts a society. When some people have and other people don't have. The problem is, as um, Oxfam, demonstrated uh, this week at Davos at uh, this piece of work that they've done for Davos that we live in a world community now, a globalised community where some people have got and most people haven't in fact they said this, you would have heard this, that the 80 richest people in the world are worth the same as the poorest 50% that's three percent 5 billion people. You could get the 80 richest people in the world on a double-decker bus. Any double-decker bus in London, there are 80 seats. This bejeweled bus that 80 people in our world sit on is worth more than the bottom half of all the people on the planet. 80 richest billionaires their wealth is equal to the bottom 50%. And that's an incredible change because Oxfam said that uh, back in 2010, just five years ago, it took 388 billionaires to achieve the same amount of wealth as the bottom 50% in the world. And things are changing really quickly as that reports told us, um, the richest 1% of the population of the world will, by next year, 2016, own half the world's wealth. That's incredible, isn't it? The richest 1% of the people in the world will own more than half the world's wealth by next year. The gap Between the rich and the poor, there's another picture such as the ones that Dave was showing you this one is from South America the gap between the rich, the elite and the poor grows and grows when you go walk through London have you noticed uh, it just struck me the other uh, the the other day actually, I wasn't even in London you you go past a hotel and it says exclusive that's a crime isn't it, what does exclusive mean Exclusive means that some people are excluded, but we enjoy going to exclusive places. I went to an exclusive restaurant last night. I went to an exclusive hotel. Exclusive simply means some people are excluded. There will arise, will there not, a generation of people who will not be able to believe that we allowed this kind of thing to happen that we went on holidays to wonderful beaches next to poverty, that we had places in our city where some people were allowed to go and others were not welcome. It's a strange world. The question is, who are the world's richest 1%? If the world has got this 1% who are elites... These people who drive in Rolls Royces and and wear watches worth twenty, thirty thousand pounds—these must be the world's richest one percent. The head of BBC Statistics, because of what Oxfam did this week, announced at, um, at at Davos. The head of BBC Statistics, his name's Anthony Rubin. He said this that in order to be part of the wealthiest 1% of the world's population, an individual would need to be worth just over half a million pounds. In other words, anyone who lives in London or the South East and owns a home without a mortgage is part of the world's 1%. One percent club. It's an incredible thing. Now, it means that some of us here tonight are sitting next to somebody else who is part of the one percent club. And of course, what happens is, as you as you go through life, that builds. You pay off your mortgage. You reach the place where you are part of this elite. So, rather than pointing someone else. We need to recognise that this 1%, well perhaps we're really poor and we recognise our poverty and we're only in the 2%. The point is we're all elite. The point is we're all in those high rise buildings and not in the slums. Um, Pope Francis And Christine Lagarde um, from the International Monetary Fund. She's on the TV a lot, isn't she? She wants to be the president of France. Both of them have warned, I've seen in just recent weeks, that we're reaching a place that is almost like, well, in our terms, Victorian Britain. Where the rich are so rich and the poor and the left out are so poor and left out. Um, Oxfam. Suggested to world governments that they needed to do, I think, seven things. Here are the seven things. One is we need to, the, our governments need to clamp down on tax dodging by corporations and rich individuals. A little bit of commentary on that from me. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? As we head up, we're in the last hundred days or so before the general election, is that right? Expert there? Hundred and. 102 from an MP here. It's 102 days to go. We are in the run-up to a general election. And uh, issues like immigration become hotter and hotter and hotter as we go. Uh, The problem with immigration, we're told, is these people turn up over here and they take our jobs and they contribute nothing and they make our country poorer. Actually, what Oxfam say is it's the super-rich... And the corporates that take and take and take, they say we have to clamp down on dodgy, uh, on tax dodging by corporations and rich individuals. I read in a, a book, I don't know whether it's true, um, that Philip Green, um, some of you will know who he is, uh, uh, pays less tax in this country than one of the cleaners does that works for him. Perhaps we need to think about these things, say Oxfam. Invest in universal, free, public services, such as health and education. Oxfam say that each country should share the tax burden fairly, shifting taxation from labour and consumption towards capital and wealth. Oxfam say... That each country should introduce a minimum wage and move towards a living wage for all workers. I said this morning that um, just the other week it so happened that um, the bosses of uh, a brand new hotel, um, just just over that way, uh, luxury hotel, uh, came to see me. They came to see me because quite often uh, big business in the uh, city comes to see us here. Um, all sorts of people, it's, um, it's quite interesting, uh, we get to meet um, all sorts of people because um, they're wanting to develop things in the city and we're here and we run the primary school and the secondary school and so it's important to keep you know, us on side I suppose, that's the truth because they come and they say we really care about, we want to invest in the local community etc etc so I was talking to uh, the boss bosses um, uh, with Carly, who's um, the head of secondary school here, the two of us were talking to the bosses of a very luxurious hotel who said to us, we really care about the community and we want to invest back in it. And I happened to say to the boss, do you pay a living wage? To which they said, oh, we couldn't do that couldn't stretch to that was their term. This is a five stroke six star hotel that can't stretch to paying its employees a living wage. But then they added, but when people are on duty we do give them a free meal. I said, if you really want to invest in this community and these children, pay their parents a wage worth Introduce equal pay legislation and promote economic policies to give women a fair deal. Ensure adequate safety nets for the poorest, including a minimum income guarantee. And lastly, agree a global goal to tackle inequality. There you are. A news report from this week. We get to Amos just a minute while i was away on holiday i read this book by russell brand um i'd recommend it to you it's a, it's hilarious really um it's partly kind of prophetic partly just completely bonkers and um it's this amazing mix of uh, stuff um but you having read it you just have to say if there's one label you would give it it is spiritual It is about spirituality. It's also, he's angry about government and he's angry about big business and he says we should take all these things over and turn everything into cooperatives as though we're going to march into Barclays headquarters in Canary Wharf tomorrow morning and say, right, we the people take control. um, There's there's some gaps in uh, Russell's kind of logic, I think, in lots of ways, but... um, he says some extraordinarily profound things at the same time. Do you know there's one chapter of the book, honestly? All it is is a commentary on the Lord's Prayer. He goes through the Lord's Prayer clause by clause. It's printed out in the book. And then it gives you Russell Brand's thoughts on what Jesus meant. And actually, it's extraordinarily accurate and um. And quite deep and challenging to many churches who see these things in a very individualized and heavenly way. Um, But what um, Russell says, there's a lot of expletives in there as well. uh, He's not a royalist, I think it's fair to say. But um, this is what he says. Total revolution of consciousness and our entire social, political, and economic system is what interests me but it's not on the ballot you can't vote for it but he doesn't vote you know um, and that's how he, i don't vote uh, because he says it makes no difference the world's run by big corporations anyway he makes the point which um i i checked out is true actually that in the last hundred years in america every election has been won by the party that had most money in their campaign fund. He says every single time. So he makes the point, why bother with the election? Why don't you just sit down and say, who's got most money this time? Is it the Democrats or is it the Republicans? Oh, it's the Republicans. OK, you've won. You could save, he says, an awful lot of paper and time if you just added up who'd got the most money for advertising and put them in office uh, for four years. It's an amazing thing. but he says, this isn't on the ballot. I'd say to Russell, in fact, I read his book and thought we should ask him to come along and speak. I think he'd, he'd, uh, he'd, he'd like to. It's, his book is about his demons and his search as well. It's, about the, it's a search for inner spiritual truth and a search for radical societal transformation all muddled up together um, But he says it's not on the ballot. Here are the words of the prophet Amos. He reports God as saying, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your hearts, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. As Dave said, Israel at this time is prosperous, the rich are doing very well. These verses are the iconic verses from uh, Amos they take them from chapter five you'll recognize particularly the last two lines but let justice roll on like a river righteousness like a never-failing stream the reason you recognize them is because Martin Luther King kept repeating them in his I have a dream speech which he delivered to that crowd of a quarter of a million people in Washington let justice roll on like a river righteousness like a never-failing stream but if you read the chapters around uh, th- at this, you'll have to take my word for it unless you go home and read Amos, which I recommend to you even more than Russell Brand's book. I recommend that you read Amos because what Amos is saying is this. He begins by, by judging, uh, in, uh, by reporting that God is judging the countries around Israel, Moab, etc., He begins with that report, but then he says that God will come to judge Israel and that their country will collapse and that they'll be cast into um, exile because the rich have exploited the poor, because they built a society that's twin track, because of relative poverty. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. They were smart religious festivals. There was lots of money in the country. They could do religion big time. I despise your assemblies. They're a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings, lots of them, I will not accept them. I've got no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I'll not listen to the music of your harps. I want justice to roll on like a river righteousness, like a never-ending stream. If we talk the next few verses after that, um, God says to the people, unless you change your ways, you will be run over by Damascus. You will be taken into exile. Sin always produces its own reward. Sin is its own punishment. If you read Amos, it puts into God's mouth, because of these things, you you will be punished. And it's easy to misread them as, ah, God looks at our lifestyle and says, right, I'm going to get you for that. You've lived selfishly, individually, personally, or corporately, and therefore I will judge you. Sin is its own punishment. What God is saying to the people, live this way and you will reap a harvest that you didn't mean to reap. It's what the authors of spirit level, which I do recommend to you, are saying. If you live in a society where you allow the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer and no one cares, actually, you're headed for trouble. We live in a society where a few have much more than most. And it's a society that's going to uh, cause us uh, trouble. This year is an election year. Here's a quote by Solzhenitsyn. The dividing line between good and evil cuts through every human being. It's a fantastic quote, I think. Because what we want to do is put the dividing line between good and evil somewhere to one side of us. We are on the good side. We're the good guys. We go to church on Sunday evening. The bad guys don't. Amos says, don't bring to me your songs. Don't bring to me the stench of your offerings. What I require from you is justice. What I require from you is a life Live for me the dividing line between good and evil cuts through every heart cuts through all of our hearts this morning i was saying to people i'm sure you know this there's been lo- lots of research anthropologists tell us what we know uh, is, is true anyway that you can ju- you can tell the gods of a society by looking not so much at our art and literature though that helps but, but at our buildings You look for the biggest buildings in any society, and those buildings tell you who gets worshipped. So St. Paul's Cathedral used to dominate London, but not anymore because now the banks dominate London. And the shopping malls, the shopping centres, with their domes and their spires, these have become the places of worship. You can look at any society, we're told, and the most elaborate buildings are the place of worship. We've become consumers. Um, years ago, I had a chance to go to um, uh, America, and I stayed on uh, a native Indian reservation. I may have told you one or more stories about uh, my stay there anyway, but uh, it was a fantastic thing. And here's an old uh, uh, Navajo Indian, actually, story that gets told. Um, It's a story that's told by the elders. And it simply says this. There was a man who had two dogs. One was white and one was black. It's not a racist thing, it's just there was a white dog and a black dog. But the dogs didn't like one another. They were both vicious and they used to fight with one another all of the time. The question in the story goes, which dog? prevailed. Which dog won? Which dog do you think won? The black one or the white one? Which dog won? The answer is this. So say the leaders of the Navajo people. The dog that won is the dog that I fed. The dog that wins is the dog that gets fed. There's a dividing line between good and evil that cuts through every human being. The dog that wins is the dog that gets fed. Do I feed my consumerism? Or do I turn and live another way? From citizens to consumers. A citizen is a participant. A consumer just takes... Consumers used to be formally known as people. But now they just consume. Our society tends to do that to us and leaves us in a bad place. Jesus said this, love God, you know he said this, but I'd like to give you an insight on it, perhaps that you don't have. Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So he said, in effect, search for the divine within yourself. And search for the divine within others. And serve that. Serve the spiritual, the divine within yourself, instead of being a consumer and search for the divine in others, and recognize it, and serve them. Serve God, and serve others, instead of just serving these possessions. What we've got to do, is turn this consumerism on its head. From citizens to consumers on its head, and get back to community. I'd suggest to you um, this. In fact, another little uh, story, I, th- I think this probably developed, I've been away for a couple of weeks, I think this probably developed and so probably Dave knows more about this than I do because Dave works alongside me. But in uh, in the, the last few weeks of just before the new year, in the run up to the election, um, I was um, in conversations with um, leaders of both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party who both effectively said to me, to uh, me on behalf of us, Oasis all of us we don't know how to do local community we don't know how to do local community I've just been to New Zealand, we've been to New Zealand on holiday and whilst I was there I had some uh, I did have a holiday, a long holiday but had some conversations uh, that were set up for me with Uh, people involved in the delivery of healthcare and education um, and government's involvement in all of that in New Zealand. There's a worldwide shift away. Um, A a government uh, guy in New Zealand in a meeting that was set up for me to talk to these guys, he said uh, government, he was talking about government in New Zealand, we've come to realise that we're very bad at handling assets. They were talking about care homes and social housing and care homes for the elderly. And government's very bad at handling these, so we want to give these assets to partner groups. That's what he was saying. And it was I, I was there to speak to these guys, and I said, yeah, absolutely, that's true, but you want to give them to partner groups less 20%. That's what always happens. You want to give these... We're very bad at handling all these assets, so we'll let you run them, but we're, we're top-slice 20% and leave you with less to do more. The reality is, of course, that in the West, as the, v- the rich elite get richer and the poor get poorer, the burden falls on the state more and the state can't handle it. And then the state has to say, how do we work with others to make our uh, communities work? I believe this, that we can serve our communities in these ways. I've listed these five things. I think... But as Oasis in Waterloo through the church, and you see what we do through the children's center and the the primary school and the secondary school and the debt advice center we've set up and the food bank and the work with the hospital and the the farm work developing and uh, the stuff with the football teams that uh, we've got so many young people involved in now. And the new community um, coffee shop we're going to build and the uh, credit union and the work in the hospital, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and I hope this coming year we're going to be able to do a lot more around health care uh, together, um, working with St. Thomas's. Every community needs to work for itself. Where, Who can we rely on for health? You know there's a huge amount of research that's done around health that says, if you've got social contacts and you're embedded in a community, you are less likely to have a heart attack. And if you do, you're more likely to recover from it. You're less likely to have high blood pressure and circulation problems. If you get cancer, you're more likely to recover from that cancer if you're in a community. These aren't just my views. They aren't my, well, they are my views, but they come from a huge amount of research that's conducted by the medical profession worldwide. How are people healthy? Well, good nutrition is really important. Of course, we know that. And we know doing physical exercise, you know, 20 minutes a day or whatever it is, getting your heart rate up is really important. But the professionals agree that the most important element in health is belonging to community. huge piece of research just done in the States uh, took a bunch of people who, had high blood pressure and they'd had strokes and heart attacks, etc. they were write-offs, insurance write-offs. And uh, they'd been cared for in community and they have demonstrated through this kind of longitudinal approach to research that being in community brings well-being and makes all the difference. Who's going to provide that? Those who've turned from being consumers to being citizens. Those who say to God, it's not just our songs we're bringing to you, but our concern for justice. Safety. Who's going to make this area safe to live in? Ten, eleven years ago, when I first came here to be part of that, this church, we set up um, Hullabaloo. is you know, a kind of uh, play and stay thing, which we now run through the children's center that we have in uh, the park by the War Museum oasis play space but the beginnings of that the mums used to come all the time and say help us get out of here help us get out of here they all wanted to move out to Alpington and Sidcup they wanted to escape here. why would you want to escape living here you live next to the London Eye and the Tower of London and the Tate Modern and the Tate and you live next to Parliament you live next to the riches of the culture that is here and you want to go and live in Sidcup Uh, if you live in Sidcup forgive me it's a wonderful place it's a wonderful place if you don't really want to do much. But here, who would swap this for that? But they all wanted to because they weren't safe. It's great now when I talk to parents uh, at the two schools who want to be here. I sat with a mum uh, about nine months ago in this building, actually, who cried, and she cried because she left the community because she never believed there would be a secondary school here worth sending her kids to. So she left the community, and now she was crying for her loss. We can build a safe community if we turn from consumerism to citizenship, searching for the divine in others, loving others as we love ourselves, the local environment, our children's safety, care, Um, We're involved, of course, here. um, uh, um, We're involved in that. Let me say it down the way. Do you know that over 20% of the kids in the secondary school here uh, have a child protection order because of the difficult surroundings of their home life? But we're able to work. Some of you, some of the church have been involved in this. We're able to work with young people give them protection. You see, what happens is, in a consumer society, you pay your tax and you farm it out to social services. And you farm it out to professionals. You have psychiatrists and social services and all sorts of people who do for you what a community used to do for itself. And that is not a knock at social services or psychiatry or anything like that. But that's what we do. Professionals sort this except they can't. And it doesn't work. And we got more and more kids in detention centers and more and more people in our prisons because we farm every, every dysfunctionality, we farm out to a professional somewhere because we're consumers. And God calls us to be citizens. Don't bring to me your songs, says Amos. Don't bring to me your songs and your offerings and your religious clatter. Instead, bring justice. And get involved. That's what will make the difference. Common unity, community. I close by telling you a story um, that was told to me in New Zealand. Um, I met somebody who, a very wealthy person, who had a friend who was even more wealthy, who went to see Mother Teresa. He'd lived a life, he'd become a billionaire, he lived a life gathering cash. And he reached the place where he realized that his life had to be some about something else. Um, so he went to see Mother Teresa. And he took with him an envelope. And in this envelope was a check. The check was worth many, many, many uh, tens of millions of dollars. And he eventually got his audience with Mother Teresa. They chatted, and he said how much he appreciated her work and how he'd come to see that life was about more than making money. And he said, so I brought you this envelope. And he pushed the envelope towards her, and she pushed it back and said, no, 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 I don't, I, I don't want your envelope. And she kept talking. And then a bit later on, he said, look, take the envelope. And she said, no, 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 no. And they talked a bit more. And in the end, he said, look, take the envelope. It has a $100 million in it. Take the envelope. And my friend in New Zealand told me that his friend had looked into Mother Teresa's eyes, who looked at him, handed the envelope back, and said simply this, God doesn't need your money. What he'd like is you. God doesn't need our money. What he'd like is us. If I could just flick back. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Don't come to me splashing your dosh around. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings because you can afford them and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I've got no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. What does all that mean for you? I don't know. What it means for us as a church is that we must serve our community because it's only through us leading this way that others will discover back from consumerism to citizenship. What does it mean for you though? Let's pause for a moment and think of those words of Mother Teresa. God doesn't need your envelope. What he wants is you.